invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Philippians chapter 3. This morning in the sermon, we will be considering verses 4 through 9, but I want to read verses 1 through 11 as we begin so that we can again get a sense of the context of our passage this morning. Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. We have been looking at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. We've noted that this church... Uh, was well known by Paul. It was one that he planted, and it was one that he loved dearly. He loved the people of the church. And in this letter, one of the things that the Apostle Paul does is he warns them about the Judaizers. Judaizers were false teachers who were influencing early Christians by changing the true, pure gospel of Jesus Christ. We see that in order to um, combat the Judaizers, the early church met to discuss the issue at what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. And I'm going to read the first five verses to give us a sense of, of how this issue was resolved by the early church. In verse 1, we see the false teaching of the Judaizers identified and then how the church met together to uh, discuss this the problem of this doctrine. Acts chapter 15, beginning of verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them, 
But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. We see that the early church met to discuss this issue. And after much discussion and, and debate, as they were searching the scriptures and being led by the Holy Spirit, their understanding came to be that the old covenant laws were all fulfilled in Christ. That included circumcision. Now, Peter summarizes in verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to, through our strict obedience to the law, just as they will. Christ has fulfilled the ceremonial law. We know, don't we, that we now have baptism, which is a sign of the new covenant and which replaces uh, circumcision. So the matter was, in essence, settled at the Jerusalem Council. Circumcision is not required for salvation, but as we noted last week, the false teaching persisted. And these Judaizers began to spread across the Roman Empire to um, spread this uh, false teaching, plague the church. And this is a form of legalism, right? And this form of legalism has plagued the church for centuries, we talk about legalism. Uh, legalism is any attempt to gain acceptance or, or forgiveness from God through some kind of work or, or through our own merit. Self-justification. It's standing before God based on self-righteousness, what we think we can bring to the table when it comes to our salvation. And Paul warns the Philippians about these Judaizers, about these legalists. And Paul says, you know, if anyone could stand before God based on confidence in his own works, it would be me. And Paul gives us his resume here as a Pharisee, his reasons for boasting in himself before his conversion to Christ. And we see here his reasons for confidence in the flesh. He lists seven in particular says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And the seven things that he lists here, the first four describe his pedigree, his family background. And the last three describe his uh, personal accomplishments. The first on Paul's resume as a Pharisee is that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Now, Given that uh, circumcision was the main thing that the Judaizers were emphasizing, you know, Paul starts his resume with that. Circumcised on the eighth day. Now, we know that God originally commanded circumcision as the sign of the covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And circumcision was meant to be an outward sign of an inward faith, of an inward reality. God gave this sign of circumcision to Abraham and to his descendants in order to mark them out as his people, to set them apart from the rest of the nations, not just outwardly speaking, but showing the inward work that he was doing in their hearts. So all of Abraham's male descendants were to receive this sign of the covenant. Right? We read this command to Abraham in Genesis 17, verses 12 through 13. God says to Abraham, he who is Eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or 
bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be surely circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And what we read in Philippians 3 is that the Apostle Paul received this sign on the eighth day, just as God had commanded, on the eighth day after his birth. And, you know, the question is, why does Paul point this thing out, right? Well, he does so perhaps to emphasize that, you know, he wasn't a late convert to Judaism. It's not like he was born into a pagan family and uh, only uh, converted later in life after uh, leading a life of sin. No, he was pointing out that, hey, I was born in Abraham's line. So much so that right after birth, eight days, according to the word, I received the sign of the covenants. That's first on his resume. Secondly, next reason for boasting he gives is that he was of the people of Israel. In other words, Paul belonged to Israel by birth and not by conversion. You know, he's emphasizing the fact that he wasn't an outsider looking in, but he was of Israel. We know that uh, though Gentiles could convert to uh, Judaism uh, by observing certain rites, you know, they could never truly consider themselves of Israel. In fact, there were rabbinic teaching, teachings in Paul's day that uh, distinguished between the benefits of belonging to those, of, uh, to those born of Abraham and to Gentiles who converted to the Jewish faith. And those rabbinic teachings you know, showed that there was a difference and that those born of Abraham, those born of Israel, in that line, uh, actually had a more privileged status. Um, if you've ever uh, visited a foreign country, you might know what it feels like to feel like an outsider, right? Every moment of every day, you're reminded that you don't uh, fit in. Uh, you're not like everyone else. You're different. And Paul says, you know, I never felt that way. Uh, Because I was an insider from the start. I was born of the people of Israel. Thirdly, not only that, but continues and points out that he was born of the tribe of Benjamin. The resume continues to build. He narrows his focus now as he describes his heritage. Now focusing on the tribe that he descended from. He was born of Benjamin. Why is this significant? Well, because the uh, tribe of Benjamin was part of the remnant that remained faithful to God during the Babylonian exile. And they were later brought back to the land, uh, to Israel. We read in the Old Testament that after Israel settled into the promised land, that God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and and they were inhabiting now the land that he had given to them. The people of Israel began to turn from God and to idols. And after several generations, God disciplined his people. He disciplined them through the surrounding nations. So Assyria invaded the northern kingdom, and those ten tribes were taken into exile. And they assimilated into the nation of Assyria and never returned to the land. And then the Babylonians invaded the southern kingdom with its two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But those two tribes didn't assimilate into uh, Babylon. 
but many of them remained faithful, and God soon brought them back to the promised land. So by Paul highlighting that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, he's saying that I'm identifying myself with the part of faithful Israel, the remnant of the people of God. I am part of the faithful who uh, came back to the land. The last special designation of his heritage we see is that he is, fourthly, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, you know, what he means by this is less clear than the other things that he mentions, but it's possible here that Paul is pointing out that both of his parents were Hebrews. Unlike, uh, we know that Timothy, his uh, mother was Jewish, but his father was a Gentile. Um, And Paul says, no, I'm I'm not, you know, half and half. Uh, Instead, he says, I was born into a truly Jewish family. I learned the language, and I learned the customs and the ideas and the traditions of, of Judaism from my earliest days. Again, he wasn't an outsider looking in. He was truly an insider, even more of an insider than were the Judaizers who were boasting in their own self-righteousness and in their own works. So Paul now moves from his pedigree, the qualifications of his family background, now to his personal accomplishments. Right? Everything that he said up until this point is, is something that he could not control. Right? It's part of his heritage. But now he moves on to his own accomplishments, the way that he observes the law and, and the things that he believes were pleasing to God. So he says, now, as to the law, a Pharisee. And when we hear that word Pharisee, what we need to understand is that the Pharisees were a very small percentage of the Jewish population um, in Paul's time. The Jewish historian Josephus says that there was only about 6,000 of them at any given time in all of Israel. So it was a small group. And the Pharisees were very diligent when it came to their observance of the Mosaic law. They were, they were meticulous in law keeping. They devoted their energy. They devoted their time to the careful study of the Mosaic law as well as to all the other traditions that had arisen over the centuries. As one scholar notes, you know, for the Pharisees, the focus of their Torah observance was a commitment to purity in the everyday matters of life, down to the very details, right? They weren't okay with just general obedience. They wanted to be meticulous at every point. Jesus illustrates this the parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And in that parable, Jesus described the prayer of the Pharisee. Listen to the Pharisee's prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You know, in this prayer... We get a sense of the Pharisees' self-righteousness, don't we? In fact, Luke tells us that the reason why Jesus told this parable, in Luke chapter 18, verse 9, says Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and who treated others with contempt. And this is what Paul points out here. He was a Pharisee, a bona fide lawkeeper. We can sometimes 
When we think about the Pharisees, we can have a kind of a caricature about them because of the way that they treated the Lord Jesus. Uh, we can kind of make them out to be uh, like they were the bad guys in their day. And I used this illustration in, in Sunday school this morning. Uh, it's kind of like the old westerns. Right? In the old westerns, you can always tell who the bad guy is because of how he looks. They have a, a black hat, right? the suspicious grin, the dark eyes. And as soon as the bad guy walks in on the scene, uh, you can tell right? that's the bad guy. And we might think that that was the case with the Pharisees in Jesus' day because of the horrible way that they treated the Lord Jesus, the way that they opposed him and they worked to convict him uh, before the Romans. But, you know, this was not how the people in Jesus' day saw the Pharisees. They were considered the good guys. The Pharisees were considered the best guys. You know, if you were running a business and you needed employees, uh, you would love to have a Pharisee run your business. Uh, you could trust that Pharisee not to steal from you. You could trust that he would show up on time and, and work his hardest to make your business prosper. The Pharisees were highly respected. They were ideal citizens. And Paul says, I was among them, among that elite group. Next, Paul says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Now, zeal describes an intense desire that shows itself in our actions. Um, it means uh, that you're passionate about something and you seek after it, you pursue it. And Paul here says that before his conversion, he was zealous, passionate about finding Christians and killing them. We know that he was present when Stephen was killed in Acts chapter 7. We read in Acts 7 verse 58, then they cast Stephen out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who was known later uh, as Paul, his Roman name. And then in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, we read about Paul's mission, again, before his conversion. But Saul, uh, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any belonging to the Christian faith, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. We know that the Apostle Paul was unsuccessful in that mission in Acts chapter 9. As Jesus came to him on that road to Damascus and changed his heart in a sudden and dramatic way, we read about Paul's powerful conversion in Acts chapter 22, verses 3 through 8. Paul writes, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of the elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And now he explains his conversion. As I was on my way, 
and drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. See, in this passage, before his conversion, how Paul zealously persecuted the church. He's adding that to his resume of his works righteousness as a Jew before conversion. And lastly, Paul describes his obedience to the law as a Pharisee. As to righteousness under the law, he says, blameless. And we've touched on this already a little bit. Notice in this passage that he refers to himself as blameless. You know, this doesn't mean that he believed that he was without sin as a Pharisee, but that he religiously used all of the provisions that the Old Covenant provided in order to remove his guilt and his defilement and his sin. He's referring to the fact that, you know, I kept all the rituals. I, all the sacrifices that were required, the holy days, the washings, I kept all of those religiously in order to cleanse my guilt and my sin. What an amazing religious resume, is it not? What accomplishments, we might say, in the flesh. Why does Paul go out of his way to list these things in such detail? Loved ones, he does so to show that he had everything but the most important thing he lacked, and that is Christ. And because he lacked Christ, in reality, he had nothing. See, Paul is pointing out that you may be very wealthy, you may be very smart, maybe very strong and healthy, perhaps from a good family, perhaps even very religious, right? But if you don't have Christ, you have nothing. All the other stuff will fade, it will rust, it will be destroyed. It is what you have through Christ alone that is eternal. If you have Christ, you have everything. And that's what Paul now describes in the next few verses in our passage this morning. We read in verses 7 through 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In in these verses, notice the repetition of the phrases gain and and loss. Paul is using um, accounting language to describe his conversion on that road to Damascus and, and his faith in Christ. And You know, we might think this morning of a a ledger book, uh, or maybe in our day it's better to think of like an Excel spreadsheet with columns, right? And Paul is is saying, if you think about that ledger book or that Excel spreadsheet, in one column, you can list there all of your, your assets, all of your possessions, all your finances, all your stocks and bonds, all your properties. What do you do? You draw a line at the bottom and you kind of sum it all up. And then in another column, you list all your debts and and liabilities, uh, those things that count against you, that in some sense can cause you great harm. 
And Paul is saying, you know, as I looked at, at that ledger book, before I met Christ, before I was regenerated by the Spirit, I had everything in verses 4 through 6 in that first column, those, those seven qualifications that he listed. I had put everything in that first column right, of my assets, the things that I trusted in. I saw my heritage and my law-keeping as assets and as helpful to me so that I might stand before God and, and be righteous. And Paul says, when I looked in that other column that listed my debts and, and those things that were liabilities, uh, you know, I saw nothing there. It was empty. Because in my mind, I was blameless as a Pharisee. But then he says, after I met Christ... After I was made a new creation, I realized that the things that I formerly considered assets and helpful to my standing before God became liabilities. They moved to the other column. All the things that he listed there in verses 4 through 6, his heritage and his law-keeping, shifted from the assets column to the debts column, so that the very things that Paul took pride in, those things in verses 4 through 6, those very things he now realized condemned him before God. Because for those, we know, for those who are outside of Christ, their deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. Filthy rags. God does not accept them. And so to rest in those things is to rest on a faulty foundation, a foundation that will only bring greater judgment, as we read in Romans chapter 3. Love knows this is exactly what happens when we know Christ by the Spirit. We are given eyes to see, to see Christ, but also to see our sin. And with those spiritual eyes, we realize how much we fall short of his glory. Right? This was Isaiah's realization when he stood before the Lord, as he cried, woe is me. He realized his own sin and the sin of the nation. And that's what happened to Paul. Woe is me. This man who thought he was blameless fell down before the Lord. He went from a sense of feeling blameless and proud to feeling completely unworthy, completely needy and desperate. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Paul's whole view of himself was turned on its head. Instead of being accepted with God, he discovered he was rejected. Instead of having gone further in holiness than Christians like Stephen, remember Stephen whom he had persecuted, Paul had completely lost the way. The very things he was counting on to gain righteousness with God turned out to be witnesses for the prosecution against him. Liabilities reasons for guilt. All Paul counted on as his accomplishments were, in fact, failures. This is where we see the grace of the Lord Jesus, loved ones. That rather than leaving Paul in that state of lamenting his sin and wallowing in it, he took that column, now listing all of Paul's debts and liabilities, and he wiped it clean, forgiven. And then in the asset column, Christ placed his own good deeds, his perfect obedience. So now the ledger book looks like it should. No debts before the Lord. And when it comes to our assets and our uh, treasures, 
we see there the works of Christ. And that's what the Lord Jesus does for each and every one of those who place their faith in him. Our sins are washed away. We are forgiven. Beloved ones, we are not left at zero, simply without debts. The gospel says that our account is then credited with Christ's own righteousness. And that's why we can say with Paul that everything that we once thought gain, we now count as loss, as rubbish. As the King James Version puts it, rightly translates this word as dung. So compared to Christ and his perfect righteousness, everything else is garbage. Do you understand that this morning, friends? Can you say that with Paul? Do you this morning understand and know the surpassing greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, I want to ask you, how can you know him this morning? Paul gives us the answer in our third point. We are to receive and rest in Christ's righteousness alone. Paul says in verse 9, And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Friends, we all need the righteousness of Christ because as we noted We fall short in every way of the standard that God requires from each of us. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we are born dead in trespasses and sins. And he says again in Romans 3, verses 9 through 12, we read this morning, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, not even the Pharisees. John Calvin concluded in reflecting on this. He said, we are merely on account of such corruption, deservedly condemned by God, meaning simply being born of Adam. And Calvin continues, Such a judgment by God is perfectly just, for our nature is not only utterly devoid of goodness, but so prolific in all kinds of evil that it can never be idle. Calvin says not only are we born in sin, but we continue to sin on a daily basis. Calvin echoes Scripture's teaching that says that we are corrupt, born in sin, and so that By our birth, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds are not pleasing to God. This is why, loved ones, our self-righteousness, our attempts at law-keeping and pleasing God through our works will always fail. And it will always produce greater condemnation because we cannot do what pleases God as long as we are outside of Christ. Notice what Paul says in in chapter 3, verse 9 of Philippians that I may be found in him, in Christ. See, when we believe, we are united to Christ by faith, faith that is a gift from God, and Christ takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. We call this justification. As a child, I was uh, taught that a good way to remember what justification means is to think... uh, just as if I'd never sinned. And that was really helpful to me 
at the time. But, you know, as I, as I grew up in my faith and, and the more I thought about it, that's only half the answer, just as if I'd never sinned, right? That's only half, in a sense, of the gospel because the gospel says that not only has Christ taken our sin, but his righteousness is then credited to us. As Paul says here, this is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 9 of Philippians 3, it's an alien righteousness. It's not ours, it's Christ. He earned it by his obedience and he credits it to us. And so a better way of remembering what justification is, is perhaps thinking about it, and this is much longer right, than what I learned, uh, just as if I'd never sinned and also kept the whole law perfectly with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's a better in a sense, definition of justification because it perfectly describes the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? He is the one who never sinned, and he is the one who kept the law perfectly with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we, by faith in him, benefit from his obedience. We are eternally blessed because of his obedience. I want to conclude with the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 60 question is, how are you righteous before God? The answer is, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone to uh, all evil, yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me. If only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessed assurance that we have through Christ that you have taken the filthy robes of our sin and clothed us with the royal robes of the Lord Jesus. Grant us daily joy and peace in this truth, we pray. And Lord, when we are tempted toward legalism in our hearts, begin to move toward self-righteousness. Father, correct us, discipline us, draw our gaze back to Christ and his merits. And for those here this morning who do not yet know Christ, Lord, we pray that you would grant them eyes to see and ears to hear. Accomplish in their hearts the same mighty work you accomplished in Paul's life by causing them to turn from sin and to the Savior, for there is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.